America is in crisis. 40 million unemployed, 100,000 plus dead from coronavirus, and U.S. cities are burning. This is a moment in history unlike we've seen in my lifetime. So how do you talk about this with your family? How can you use this moment to actually inspire hope and change? We're going to start that conversation today. Becoming better parents, partners, and people. This is the Positively Dad Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is James Shaw, host of Positively Dad. My wife, Terry, and I are the proud parents of a rising third grader. Her name is Naomi. And I started Positively Dad to be a resource for you. We do two podcasts every week. On Mondays, we talk to an expert about something that's going to help us grow. And on Thursdays, we talk to a dad about being a dad. Our mission at Positively Dad is to help fathers become better parents, better partners, and better people. And we intend to do that today by having a conversation that's often ignored, and it just can't be anymore. We're in a moment of crisis in our country. We have unemployment like we haven't seen in generations. We've lost over 100,000 Americans to a virus, and we're seeing violence on American streets. So what do we do? You, like me, are probably experiencing so many emotions, anger, sadness, despair, just to name a few. You, like me, may be at a loss, unsure of what to think or do, uncertain of how to walk your children through this moment. So today, I intend to help each of us. Today, we're going to have a conversation that we should have had a long time ago and can be hard for us to hear. I'm white. My wife is white. My daughter is white. My wife and I both have jobs. We live in an upper-class neighborhood. Our life's good. It's pretty easy. It doesn't mean that we don't experience hardships. We do. Yet our hardships are nothing compared to what so many others in this country experience. You know, I go out and run nearly every morning at 5 o'clock. I'm not worried about being shot and killed. My family's never going to sit in the living room and have police break in and shoot me. And it's really unlikely that I'd be killed by someone putting their knee on my neck for nine minutes. Those things won't happen to me. They are happening in America. And it's time for me to participate in stopping it. It's time for me as a white man and a father to acknowledge that my experience is different simply because of the color of my skin. And it's time for me to have important conversations with my eight-year-old daughter about the real America so she can be part of the change. So that's the conversation we're going to have today and over the next few episodes. My guest today is Andrew Grant Thomas. He's from an organization called Embrace Race. And this is Andrew's second time on Positively Dad. And today we're going to talk about race in America, what's happening, and how we can use this moment to have a necessary conversation with our kids and our families. Because if we don't have this conversation now, then when will we have it? So we're going to have it now. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me again on Positively Dad. Good to be here, James. Nice to see you again. You as well. Thanks for coming back. And yeah, this time we see each other. So thanks for coming back and being on. Uh, You run an organization called Embrace Race. We've done a podcast episode with you before that I think people should go back and hear. Would you tell us briefly about your organization and what you do? And then we're going to jump in and have this important conversation. Sure. So uh, we are a national nonprofit, Embrace Race. Our tagline is Raising a Brave Generation. Uh, the we is mostly my wife, Melissa Giroux, and I. Uh, we started this four years ago. We have volunteers. We have some consultants. And the purpose of the work is really twofold, to create and curate resources 
number one, and number two, to create community for parents above all, but parents, educators, other adults in the lives of children uh, who are working to you know, support children who are thoughtful, brave, and informed about race. That's sort of our, our uh, informal, our informally framed mission. Well, we have adults that need to be informed about race as well. And so we're going to talk a lot about that today. And you're a parent yourself. So I tell am. us a little bit about your family. Sure. Melissa and I have two girls, uh, nine and 12 years old. Um, yeah, two brown skin girls, multiracial brown skin girls. And um, yeah, you know, we had done, uh, I especially had done a lot of work around race, racial equity, racial justice work, research and advocacy for a long time. Um, Melissa had also done uh, some relevant work. We have relevant um, with sort of backgrounds that lend uh, themselves to our sensitivity or sensibilities around race, ethnicity, other identity issues. And then our girls came along and the question was not only how to prepare them, you know, to walk through a world in which their racial identities and gender identities were likely to have an impact on how they walk through, but also uh, knowing that they would have, they would themselves would increasingly be able to shape the world that they walk through, right, and certainly shape other people. So, um, yeah, you know, and how to do that is uh, a big question, and we certainly didn't begin to have all the answers. Well, we don't have them, and so that's what we're talking about today. And I, I think the the thing that's been interesting over the last week is, as we've seen yet another um, person be killed by a police officer. Uh, that officer has now been charged with murder. Um, that's the, this is the third major profile, uh, a high profile, uh, murder of someone this year that is, is basically race and race alone. You have George Floyd, the Minneapolis case, you have Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia. And, um, it doesn't seem to be stopping. So I guess the question is, where do we begin a conversation about the state of race in America? It's definitely not stopping, uh, James, and it started a long, long time ago. And that actually has to be a really, really big part of the story, especially as we get into you know, why people are protesting, why they're so angry, um, and why uh, you know, some, by no means all, but some white people are observing this in dismay and thinking, you know, I, maybe I understand the why people are upset. I don't understand why they're acting out so strongly. Um, we can talk about all of that. I do want to bring in one other case, that of Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper in New York, right in Central Park. So this was the woman who was walking her dog uh, without a leash in a part of the park where it, it should have been leashed. A black man, Christian Cooper, uh, called her on it, said, you know, you please need to leash your dog. He's a birder, right? He's out there watching, right. he's concerned about a dog running around um, doing some damage, some mild damage. She, he called her on it. Uh, she refused. He started to record. And then he, she uh, called or threatened to call the police. And she told him, I'm going to call 911 and tell right. them that there's an African-American man threatening me. She right. did exactly that. And then right. towards the end of the call, she actually got, um, you know, her voice took on this right. uh, sort of panicked uh, pitch. Well, so you can see in the video the shift in her tone once she got on the phone. And right. yeah, and the emphasis of African-American man and the kind of exaggeration of the situation. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So no. we definitely have a challenge. We, there's no doubt about it. And I want to and, and the reason I want to bring that up, though, James, is, you know, 
certainly the case of police officers, and there are so many cases, so many cases, as you said, of police officers, you know, killing unarmed people of color, especially unarmed black men. Um, and uh, I bring up the Amy Cooper case, not simply because it didn't end in murder. In fact, nothing happened. You know, they both left uh, the, the park before the police even came, you know, physically harmed at the end. But uh, I think it might be a case where people might better be able to see themselves, right? Because very few of us, you know, whatever our sort of racial attitude, can imagine ourselves kneeling on the neck of a human being until that human being's life has been snuffed out, right? So my concern, uh, you know, clearly in that in in terms of his behavior, uh, the police officer, the the key one, the one who did the kneeling there, you know, it's sort of off the pale, right? He's on the thin end of the bell curve. He's way out there. We can't relate to that. But I do believe that, you know, as you suggested early, the the attitudes and impulses around race that underlay that action on his part, that those are more uh, widespread, right? Mm. So you have an you have an extreme case is what you're saying. You look at this police officer in Minneapolis and you're going, well, and, and most people on this planet would go, I would never behave in that way. I would never do that. And therefore, I'm not racist. I don't have any racial bias. I don't have a problem. And yet, if you look at the situation in Central Park, I bet a lot of people could see themselves maybe doing that, right? That would be an, an example of something that we ha- that there's a larger race problem than most white people want to recognize. And certainly, again, I believe even there, most white people, I'm sure, uh, would say, I wouldn't do that, right? I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't, you know, all but explicitly threaten a black man because he is a black man and actually wield that against him, right, as a threat. However, it is, right, it's a more, um, yeah, it's a more routine encounter, right? Two mm-hmm. people meet in the park early in the morning. Uh, And even if you don't see yourself actually sort of, you know, (laughs) articulating that threat and following through with it as she did, um, I think it it might be closer, right, to something we can relate to. Like, gosh, how does it feel? Perhaps she feels intimidated or afraid early in the morning. Maybe there's a moment, a moment in which she does think he's threatening her and her dog. So, yeah, in some ways, I think it might be more instructive, a little bit more relatable than the case of... um, George Floyd or or Ahmed Aubrey, right? The you know I wonder though if if a white man had been out bird watching in Central Park and said, "Man, would you mind putting your dog on a leash?" If it would have escalated to the way it did in this case, and in you know I guess we won't know, and uh, and yet it's an issue. So I guess go ahead. Can I just say just a quick thing yeah. there? I think yes, we we clearly we we can't know, um, and yet, but I love actually that thought exercise, right? Because I think most people, uh, if they're honest with themselves, were thinking that through, would this white woman have, clearly she would not have said, you know, I'm going to call the police and tell them an African-American man is threatening me, but the white man doing it. But, but do we believe, does it make sense to think that she would likely have threatened to call the police at all? Right. Would, would she, might she have read the whole situation differently? Right. Um, and and even if she felt threatened by that hypothetical white man, would she have felt the need, yes, to call the police and claim that this white man was threatening right. her? I mean, it seems unlikely. Right. I, I, I know we need to move on to say, say one other thing. Change that character. Do go one further. 
imagine if it had been, you know, she had been confronted by another 40-year-old white woman like herself, right, who, who said, could you please leash your dog? Is there any way that situation could have played out the way it did? It's, it's hard to imagine. It is. Yeah, I would say it's highly unlikely, right? It's absolutely highly <laughs> unlikely. So yeah. we have, we definitely have a, a, a problem. And it's like you say, it's an old one. It's a 400 year old problem, quite frankly. And it's, it's not getting better. Um, although, as we've said before, and you have to forgive me, I'm looking at this from a white guy's perspective. And, and that's the perspective that I have. And so I'm thankful to have you on to educate me. This particular time, feels different than previous times. This, this, th there seems to be, as I engage in my social media, as I see things on Twitter, there seem to be mo more white people who are upset or uh, who are, are starting to get it. I don't, I don't know what the right word is. It just seems to be different. Would you say that that's true here? Or, you know, is this what usually happens that you've, that white people get all on it, and then boom, next week it's back to normal. I do think uh, this does feel uh, somewhat different. I don't know what difference that'll make in the end. I do want to go back for one moment to a thing you said, which is, you know, uh, 400 years, it hasn't gotten better. I want to be, I, I, it has gotten better, right? Over the sweep of history, right, uh, it's certainly gotten better over the course of 400 years. You know, as a black man, you know, in this country, I certainly wouldn't trade my place in the timeline for you know 100 years ago 200 much less 400 years ago um so um you know it, it was a sweep of history i think it's certainly gotten better sure. that said there's a lot that's incredibly ugly right. uh, and and i will say that you know my position too as a black man is also very much conditioned by my own class privilege and educational privilege it's definitely better for me uh it is perhaps has improved less you know, for people who don't enjoy some of the privileges that I do. Now, on the issue of, um, you know, white people's reaction to this, I think you're right. Uh, certainly, I'm, I'm reading a lot, hearing a lot about, you know, white, white uh, observers who are very upset about the protests. And at the same time, they're also, I think, an equal number who are very sympathetic to what's mm -hmm. going on. And I mm -hmm. think there are at least two conditioning factors for that. One, of course, is this uh, life in the Trump era. I think it is true, and you know, the Trump era, which itself, you know, is on the heels of sort of Black Lives Matter, on the heels of Barack Obama's presidency. I think a lot of scales have fallen from a lot of eyes um, about, you know, the real status of race and racial attitudes in this country. That's number one. The second thing is COVID, right? And not just, um, you know, the fact that we've all been profoundly affected, but a lot of people. You know, COVID has a clear and strong racial cast mm -hmm. to it, right? Um, you know, people of color in various ways, certainly Black Americans, are suffering. We're all suffering. Some of us are suffering more, including Black Americans. Uh, a lot of white Americans, I think, have been uh, sort of newly awoken to that reality. So I think those are two things that condition them, right, how we see what's happening in Minneapolis uh, and some of these other incidents that you named. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question is, what happens next? You know, the, the question is, is this, um, is this going to grab the attention of enough white people to that they're going to participate in the change? Because anytime I read anything about this, it says there 
you know, pe- most people that I read say that there isn't really true change until the white community can recognize that there's a problem and support that. Would you agree with that? I think that's probably true. Um, I guess it depends, you know, what sorts of changes are we talking about? Okay. Um, Certainly, you know, in the case of law enforcement, right, systemic changes in law enforcement, um, I think that is probably true. Uh, The reason I hesitate, you know, I've been reading a little bit, there's a researcher, um, Erica Chenoweth, I believe is her name, and she's done this work on essentially what kind of critical mass you need in uh, sort of civil disobedience movement to affect change. And, you know, she's done a work over, over, you know, 150, 200 years looking at such movements, and she's actually come up with a number, 3.5%, right? If 3.5% of a population is actively involved, meaning in the streets, in protest, right, nonviolently, when when that number is reached, when that share is reached, they've never failed to get the changes that they want. Sometimes, you know, a smaller number uh, is sufficient. You know, I wonder what would happen. You know, in the United States, for instance, 30 million people, that's about 11 million people, right? Um, what would happen if we could get 11 million people across the country to mobilize around a set of demands? Mm-hmm. Certainly that would, it's hard to imagine that not including quite a few white people. Right. Um, I don't know what would happen if you had 11 million people of color versus, anyway, that's, it's an interesting sort of thought exercise. And frankly, I'd love to see it. It would be fascinating. So it's not a huge percentage, and yet it's, it's a, it is a big group of people. 11 million people is a lot of people. Three and a half percent, though, to think that that small could inspire a massive change is, is pretty interesting. All right, well, then let's talk protests, because that's been a hot topic. And, and it's, it's, it's expanded, um, you know, over the last few days, uh, what Friday night, you have, uh, really violent protests, quite frankly, in several cities across the country. And, um, and so then you wake up and you read on Twitter and now, Hey, this isn't the way to protest. And you, you can't go in and do this and do that. And I, and I listen to that and I go, okay, well, we've also though, as a society said that Peaceful protest isn't okay either, right? I mean, if you think about Colin Kaepernick and kneeling on Sundays at a football game and the outrage that came from that, the language the president used around that. Um, and then, and so we go from, from very peaceful to now this, and what we can't, what's the answer? Well, and here's the thing too with that. I mean, I, I think, you know, step one is to actually pay, let's pay some serious attention to what people are protesting, Right. Um, let's, you know, think about what we mean by violence, right? So, you know, let's zero in for a moment on the George Floyd case. So first of all, right, it's not only the context of, again, 408 years. I mean, really, seriously, 400 years of brutality Mm -hmm. against Black people and others, right? People that we call Native Americans have been so abused and brutalized that we hardly talk about them anymore. Right. right. Well, we stole uh, their land from them. I mean, that's quite frankly what we did. We we went in and looted the land. Oh, we stole that. There are so many treaties, virtually every one of which has been violated by the U.S. government. Right. Um, we 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 relegate native peoples to, you know, uh, only a historical existence. We don't even talk about 
you know, people who actually identify as Native Americans on the reservations, off reservations now, much less what their circumstances are. They too, by the way, are, you know, uh, populations suffering under COVID, right? The, right. The, uh, so there's, so, so that's the big backdrop, but let's focus in for a moment on what happens in Minneapolis, right? So the two police officers, the police officer who uh, kneeled on the man's neck right, including three minutes for three minutes after he was non-responsive, right, almost eight minutes total, he had 18 previous complaints against him. 18 previous complaints, including right for, you know, uh, excessive force. One of the other four officers who was fired had seven against him, including one in which uh, the police, the the, the city had to settle uh, with the victim, another black man. The point being, here's one thing I want people to understand. Black people and all people who are sort of aggrieved, right, and take to the streets protest, um, they're doing it. it you, you will rarely find a case in which that happens simply in response to a horrific incident, right? It happens in response to the failure of an institutional response to that incident, right? What we know is that, of course, you know, there are 18,000 police departments, there are, you know, untold number of police officers, of course, some of them will do terrible things. People understand that, but right. you need to quote unquote police your police officers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. I think if people see a legitimate, you know, response, an institutional response from the police chief, from the mayor, from others, from officers themselves, this is an ongoing conversation, right? Uh, you know, the, the officer, you know, it's, I'm sure it is a relatively small number of officers who have complaints against them, but what are the other officers doing? Mm-hmm. Right. When when Officer A is, is doing something horrible, is Officer B saying, hey, you need to stop doing that. I'm going to stop you from doing that. Uh, is, is he or she speaking up is, or is he or she covering up after the fact too often the latter is true? So that's right. You see what I'm saying? It's yeah. that kind of lack of institutional response um, that get people really upset. And at some point you have to ask, look, if the system you know, um, repeatedly failed to, you know, bend itself to course correct, as it were, toward just outcome. If that happens repeatedly, maybe that's actually a feature of the system and not a bug in the system. And mm-hmm. then what are we to do? Because right. it's been a really long time yes. that people and others have been saying, you're killing us. Mm-hmm. And you're killing us in circumstances like this one, where right. there's absolutely no reason that should right. ever have happened. And it would right. not have to somebody else. Correct. Yeah. No, it wouldn't happen to me. Um, it, it, yeah. In that case, it wouldn't. Okay. So my, I guess my question to that would be, had the city, let's just, and hypothetically, this is going to be a guess. Had the city responded quickly, you could have arrested that police officer immediately upon seeing the video. Had they done that and taken action faster than they did, do you think that what we've seen over the last few days would have been prevented? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, it, it, the, the, in a way, the sad irony here is that from my admittedly limited understanding, the powers that be in law enforcement in Minneapolis actually did pretty well. Mm-hmm. They did. Yeah, they fired better. them very quickly. I mean, I remember Gail King saying, I was watching CBS this morning and she said, this is really fast, right? We haven't seen officer, an officer get fired so quickly before. I think the challenge is the length of time it took to have the arrest. Right. No, this yeah. is it. But, you know, the mayor uh, came out and said some, you know, offered some very powerful, heart, heartfelt, non-mealy-mouthed words. 
Um, I haven't seen what the police chief said, but I'm told that the police chief also responded, you know, said appropriate things. Um, you know, so I, I won't, I, I don't know, you know, every, on one hand, all of these incidents share some common features and there's some particularities. This one happening, uh, again, in the sort of wake of COVID, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I've read an, a piece where a, a not, sorry, a nonprofit social justice organization local to Minneapolis did some research showing that African Americans are 13 times more likely to be killed by police officers than whites in Minneapolis. I mean, this is all right. Imagine, um, imagine just the network of communications through the black community, through other communities in Minneapolis and anywhere, right? Circulating word about what's to be expected of Minneapolis police officers. Right. Again, eight, the man had 18 complaints mm-hmm. against him and was still had a badge and a gun. Yeah. Right? Including right. for the excessive use of force. Right. So again, I think um, I, I won't, you know, I can't sort of really speak to the counterfactual of what would have happened. Certainly mm-hmm. would have helped. And I, and I think actually the mayor's words and the police chief's words from, from uh, what I've heard you know, it may not look like it, but probably helped. May have helped. Wow. Interesting. Okay, probably so not. let's let's shift for the time we have remaining and talk a little bit about, uh, kind of get in, in your lane, too, of what your organization does and talk about how we, I don't know, what, what conversations do we have with our kids? How do we raise our kids to not be people who respond like the woman in Central Park and definitely not be like the police officer how, that that yeah. that that murdered um George Floyd how, what do we do now i i've an 8 year old you have a 9 year old um yeah. you know what what's that look like what do we need to be aware of as dads right now right so here, here are just a few things in no particular order. So in this particular case, you know, so for example, we have shown both of our children, nine and 12, we've shown the uh, the Central Park video, right? It's not a graphic video. Um, you can show that and actually talk it through, right? And what, and, and our challenge, in a way, my challenge, because, uh, yeah, I do find this so upsetting um, uh, and, you know, exhausting. Uh, I find this exhausting, is not to sort of preach at my child, right? Uh, My purpose in showing that video is to have a conversation, right? It's to use as a conversation at nine years old, but also at five years old, even at four years old, uh, perhaps at three. Our children are taking, are able to, right, to process information, to ask questions, to to, to seek to make sense of what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about a relatively short video like that one is we can be on that journey with them, mm. right? So, you know, what are you seeing? How does it make you feel? Why do you think she did that? You know, how might he have felt? Isn't it interesting that he started recording, right? Why did he start recording? And then she asked him to stop recording. Why didn't he stop recording? Why do you think that might be? Um, how might she have felt? You know, she said one of the first things she said is, you know, I'm not racist. I didn't mean him any harm. I felt threatened. What, is that plausible? Why might she have felt threatened, right? So, you know, to me, that's my intuition, a series of questions where then I'm listening very carefully to what my child has to say. Um, 
And I'm also not afraid, right? So I'm creating space for, you know, as it were, making meaning of that moment, right? So it's not my meaning that I'm going to impose on my child. I want to, you know, help my child interpret what she's seeing, but also we can work together, right? I have some information my child may not, or mm. I certainly have information my child doesn't. And just one other thing in the, whether in the Central Park case or the Minneapolis case, again, there's a real backdrop to how everyone is responding, how everyone behaves, why they do what they do, which goes well beyond the individuals involved, right? So that's something to talk about and in some cases to actually do some research on. So that's something we're doing increasingly, literally taking to online and saying, hmm, that's an interesting question. Let's see if we can find out some information. Mm. I love the questions. So because what you're saying is uh, don't preach to your kids that just because someone looks different than you doesn't mean they're different. I mean, the common conversations that we probably have had in this house that, you know, we will tell stories right now. She loves reading about Rosa Parks. And we will have a conversation around what Rosa Parks experienced in the stand. And she goes, well, it's not fair that just because of the color of her skin, that that's how she was treated. And, and, and I, I go, that's right. You shouldn't treat someone differently just because they look differently than you. And yet you, we can go so much deeper in that conversation with what you just walked us through that if we, instead of telling our kids what to believe and how to behave, we can help them discover what to believe and how to behave. And then they own that. And we can do that through asking questions. And you're saying that I could, if I had a four-year-old, I could pull out the Central Park video, show it, and ask what he or she observes, what he or she thinks, and ask questions. My belief is that, you know, any child old enough to pay attention, right, to literally attend to the video, um, to, you know, perhaps formulate some questions, to have an exchange with you is old enough to do that exercise. And of course, the, the conversation you have with a four-year-old is different than the eight-year-old mm -hmm. and, sure. and different than the 12-year-old, but right. absolutely. And, and here's the other thing about asking questions. It's, you know, so many parents, especially white parents of white children, think that their four-year-old, even their eight-year-old, you know, is sort of oblivious to race. A, sort of, we know that's not true. We just right. write those well, we did a podcast on it that it's like as early as six months old. Kids can tell the difference in race and will show preference to people that look like them. So the, yeah, that's that data true. is there. Yeah, absolutely. And by the time children, most children are entering kindergarten, sort of their oh, racial yeah. attitudinal profiles are, you know, mm -hmm. similar to those of adults, not as caked in, but, you know, certainly they have biases and preferences and all these things. But here's the other thing. I think we often simply don't ask. Right, We simply don't invite these conversations. So part of the issue of asking questions and honestly waiting for and listening to the responses so I know what my child is thinking. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got to ask the, yourself the question too. See, I think this is the, prob the challenge that white people have is that we don't want to admit that this is still a problem um, in 2020. And, and it's an uncomfortable conversation. For for a, a white person to admit that their life is different because of the color of their skin and doesn't mean that they don't suffer challenges and issues and problems and don't have to also work hard. Um, and it doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't make what someone is experiencing 
that it should be better. When, you know, white privilege doesn't mean that your life is necessarily better. It just may mean that some things are easier for you. And, and I think we've got to first come to terms with that. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Number two, we've yeah. got to sit and watch the video and ask those questions you gave us of ourselves first. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And notice, by the way, that in, you know, sort of rattling off some of the questions that we do ask, right, that we do pose when we're sitting with our girls, um, I include questions about how Amy Cooper may have felt, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's not, as well as Christian Cooper, now I'm really, you know, super interested in, in, in sort of speaking to Christian Cooper because I think in most homes, certainly in most uh, uh, homes of most white families, you know, certainly the case of George Floyd, I think it is it is empirically the case, right, through surveys and polls, that most white families tend to sympathize with the police officers, right? So that being the case, not all, of course, and so, but that being the case, right, I'm especially concerned to lift up the perspectives of people of color, right? Mm -hmm. What may have been going through his head? How might George, George, George Floyd have felt uh, in that moment? What about if you were in the crowd Right, of people video recording and saying they're killing him. Right. right. Get off his neck. How is that going to ripple through the community what's happened? However, you know, there are multiple actors in this. And I think to the extent that we reasonably can, we need to understand or at least try and begin to try to speculate about what was going through the mind. How do we explain this? I don't want to vilify Amy Cooper. Right, not least because the more we distance ourselves from Amy Cooper, because gosh, we can't imagine doing that, the less likely we are to understand that we are Amy Cooper. Right, there is a real sense in which we are Amy Cooper, if not with respect to race or ethnicity, then perhaps on gender or you know sexual orientation. Right, mm -hmm. we all have our stuff, um, and you know. The so whole... we have to admit that. I'm pardon my interruption. We we have to make an admission. That 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 what we saw Amy Cooper do lives inside every single one of us at some yeah. level towards someone, whether that yeah. be like you say an ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation, gender, uh, socioeconomic class, whatever it is, that religion. lives inside of us. And yes, absolutely. right, religion, nationality, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we have to make the admission that, and and thank you for this aha that I'm having right now is that that she lives in every single one of us. And until we make that admission, we cannot uh, have any sort of change. We cannot create a world that is, is, is peaceful and loving and caring until we admit that that lives inside of each of us, yes? Yes, and, and I hear I need to invoke Brian Stevenson, the amazing right, uh, death penalty abolitionist, you know, who says, uh, and, he, and he talks a lot about uh, people in prison, people behind bars. And he says, you know, none of us should be judged by the worst thing we've ever done. Mm -hmm. I think that is so profound, right? And if we take that seriously, right, that's true of Amy Cooper, too. You know, and I'm not, you know, look, I got as upset Well, you're not as letting her off the hook. Yeah, we're not um, yeah, letting her right. off the hook, and and we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook. Right. But to reduce her, you know, uh, to think that we have nothing in common with her because the one thing we know about her is this, you know, pretty horrible thing she did. You know, we need as, as much as possible. We need to be better than that. Mm -hmm. None of us could, or few of us could survive that kind of scrutiny. 
yeah. uh, especially if it's focused on the worst moment of our lives. Well, you've done so much. You've gone above and beyond. We've talked longer than we had planned, and and I appreciate you doing that. I want to give you a chance to kind of give just one final word to our dads, and I do want to remind uh, our listeners that you and I have already had a deep conversation, really, about how to talk to your kids about race, and so that's why we didn't really do that today. We've already done that, and we'll repost the link to that podcast uh, so people can go back and listen to it. It was a really good one. Um, what, though, would be the the take-home message for the dads who are listening? What's the one thing you really want them to understand? You know, above all, I think, have the conversation. Engage your children. Have the conversation. Worry less. Let's start with having the conversation, knowing that, you know, it's it's, uh, maybe more often than not to begin with, we're not going to be happy. You know, we're going to wish we could have said something. You can revisit. Right, expect the younger your child, hopefully the, the more time you have with that child to revisit, to have new and new, newer versions of this conversation. Uh, and I want to um, give a plug for a webinar we're doing. Actually yeah, please. On, I don't know when this will come out, but on Tuesday, uh, you know, there's a professor uh, of religion at Drake of all things, but she does a lot of amazing work on anti, uh, anti-bias work and working with children. And she wrote a piece in, in CNN for CNN called um, How to Not Raise the Next Amy Cooper, right? And she's going to be a guest on our webinar. And so we're going to dive deeply into the various sorts of things we've talked about. So I think there'll be some practical advice, but also some good thinking okay. uh, about yeah, how we engage these issues. Good. Well, this will be out Monday. So it's the next day. So Tuesday day, uh, is the day they can log in. All right. So tell people Embracerate.org. then. Yeah, that's what, so. That's my next question. I want to. Know, I want you to tell people how they can engage with you because I, I follow you on Instagram. I follow you on Twitter. I'm on your email list. I get all your stuff. Um, I find it extremely beneficial. So tell Thank people you. how they can connect with you. Thank you, James. Yeah. So um, embracerace.org. One word. Embracerace.org. That's what we want people to do. You know, it's it's the flip side of colorblindness. Don't. It's not about colorblindness. It's about actually embracing race. Uh, so that's our website. If you go there, you'll see where you can uh, sign up for our uh, webinars or to be on our uh, email list. And then certainly on Facebook, um, just search for Embrace Race, one word on Facebook, you'll find us. Well, Andrew, I appreciate you taking time out, especially last minute. I emailed you late last night. You responded right away, said absolutely. So thanks for coming on again. Uh, you've offered so much to us, and I appreciate you helping us have this conversation. Well, I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate especially your uh, when you say you're going to be taking the next, you know, however long to have a series of these. Bless your heart. We need a lot more people doing a lot more of that. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm happy to do it. Quite frankly, it's overdue. I could have started these conversations at another time, um, and yet it's the right moment um, to to. I think people maybe might be more interested. So it's the right moment to have the conversation. Somebody had reached out to me, Andrew, and said. You know, I'd be interested to be on the show. I cannot do it right now. And that's what he said. He said, I just don't have the capacity to have this conversation right now. And I said, well, the good thing is this is a conversation we can, quite frankly, have any time. So I told him, when you're ready, come on. So anyway, thank you, Andrew, for being back on again. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, James. Good luck to you. What a powerful conversation with Andrew. Um, I think you could hear me having ahas in the moment. I trust you did as well. Here are some notes. Let's pay attention to what people are protesting. That's what he said. Pay attention to that. 
Most of this comes from a failure to respond, he said, and we talked a lot about Amy Cooper. And as you heard, the realization is that what we saw from Amy Cooper in Central Park really lives in every single one of us. So how do we have these conversations with our kids? And he said, you know, ask, what, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? How does it make you feel? Why do you think Amy Cooper did what she did? Why do you think Christian Cooper did what he did? And, and this gets us into conversations. And maybe the way that we change is we do less talking and more listening. That we don't lecture our kids about it. That we ask them questions about it and help them figure it out. And then the other thing that was interesting was the research that he gave. That, that it's actually a small percentage of people who are unified that can truly inspire change that can can make something different happen, and maybe this is the start of that. Somebody told me once that you cannot have a breakthrough without a breakdown, and is this the breakdown that leads to the breakthrough? It can be if we're all willing to participate. Well, actually, all of us don't have to. If three and a half percent of us are willing to participate, then this can be the breakdown that leads to a breakthrough. If you're willing to face what's going on outside of your own home and have conversations with your kids about what America really looks like, then we can inspire change. I trust that we've added value to you today. I hope you learned something from this. Again, our mission is to help each and every one of us become a better parent, a better partner, and a better person. I trust we've done that today. If we have, would you share this podcast with someone who would be interested? Would you rate, subscribe, and review so you don't miss it? Because we're going to have more conversations like this over the next few episodes. Also, we'd love to connect with you on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search at Positively Dad. And we're going to post some resources there to help you as well. We've done some episodes. I said mentioned that we had done one with Andrew before. We're going to repost that one for you, along with some others that you might find helpful during this time. Finally, if you'd like to connect with me or know somebody that would like to be on the show or, or you'd like to be on the show, please do. My email address is james at positivelydad.com. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this conversation. We'll talk to you next time on Positively Dad. I'm James Shaw. Bye-bye.